All right, very good. Well, welcome, everyone. It's good to, good to have you, good to see you. Um, sorry you have to see me twice in one day. I hope, I hope your, your dreams are okay tonight, and I am not in them. But uh, it's, good to, it's good to be here doing theology together. So I just want you to know, uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to go for like an hour-ish, I think. Um, and, but I just want you to know at any time, if you need to get up, use the restroom, or go get more, sna- go get more snacks, or um, you know, call your investment agent or whatever about whatever it is that those guys do, then feel free to do that. So this can be just real casual. And then uh, at the end, um, we'll leave the last... Oh, I'm hoping 15, 20 minutes for questions and answers about anything you want to know about the Trinity or specific passages. So my advice would be, um, you know, rather than trying to write down, you know, anything I say or, qu- or quote or whatever, I, d- I would say write down questions that you have. Because if you want anything like any quote that I read or any text or anything that, that I, I read uh, or say tonight, um, I'll just send you my notes. So I've got... 104 pages of notes here. Um, I, well, I mean, okay, maybe, maybe three, but, you know, hey. Uh, but uh, So that can be available to you as, as well. Okay, so feel free to get up and grab what you need, and, and we'll make this uh, a casual time, but, but really sweet time. And, and, and here's the reason why, oh, yeah, go ahead. Is this going to be recorded? Yes, absolutely. Now, now here's why I, I'm doing something like this. Uh, I... I have this uh, passion to do theology in the church. Um, and, and a lot of people have this, this thought of theology that it sort of belongs in the academy, that it's something that, that seminaries do, and, and it's not really, that theology doesn't really have a, a comfortable home in the church. And I really feel, in, in fact, I am fully persuaded on biblical grounds that, that we need to do and, and think theologically, robustly theologically in the church. Because um, if you're theologically shallow, your, your church will be theologically shallow. If you're theologically shallow, you, you will not be able to uh, endure persecution. You will not be able to think through the, the constant assaults from the culture on, on biblical truth. So it's just of the essence that we learn to think and do theology well. And, and I would say, here's how I define theology. And, that, and that's why we're doing this. So, so I think every month I'm going to try to do one of these um, on various topics. I've got a whole list of like 10 things that I want to I do here. And, and I feel like the most important thing to do is the triune God. But here's, here's my definition of theology. I believe that theology is taking the most lofty, exalted thoughts about God and connecting them to the everyday issues in the trenches of life. That's my definition of theology. See, I don't think we, I think we cannot sacrifice any of the depth. I think we have to go all the way up and we have to talk about the really hard, really challenging, staggering, mind-blowing things. We can't not talk about those things, but what we have to do is we have to work to make sure that we make connections to the everyday issues in the trenches of life. Like, why does the Trinity, how can that help marriages? Like, how can knowing the doctrine of the Trinity help us be better parents? Or, or you, know, um, you know, how can the Trinity help us be better evangelists? I mean, those kinds of things. That, that, that should pervade and permeate and transform even the most nitty-gritty areas of our life. So, so that's what I mean when I'm talking about theology, that it transforms 
who we are. So that's why we're going to do this, and, and uh, I'm really excited uh, about tonight and the, the various other things that we're going to uh, talk about in the following months and, and Lord willing, uh, years, unless the rapture comes, and I hope it does. So let me, uh, let me pray, and then um, we'll get started, okay? Oh Lord, it's a daunting task, what we're going to do here tonight. Oh Lord, to talk about who you are, your triune nature in an hour less than an hour, that's, that's impossible. And, and so Lord, we know that we're going to be skin deep tonight, that we're going to skim the surface, that we're merely going to touch the fringes of your ways. And yet, Lord, how beautiful are even those fringes? How profound are even the outskirts of your ways? How glorious are even the glimpses of who you are. And so, Lord, as we talk about you and what it means that you are Father, Son, and Spirit, and that each person is fully God, and yet there's only one God, that, that, that doesn't work in our human logic. And yet it is theological. It is right. It is truth. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us, O oh Lord, make the connection between who you are as a trinity and what that must do to transform our lives. So, Lord, we ask for your help tonight because supernatural work requires supernatural power and doing theology is profoundly supernatural. So help us to do that well in a way that brings glory always and only to your son. And in his name we pray, amen. So I, I want to begin with a, uh, a story about, uh, that happened in Spokane and it involves the Trinity. Uh, doing college ministry, I got, I got to uh, work with, with all types of students, most of whom were unbelievable, unbelievable and, and just such a joy and lifetime friends. And, and others uh, came into the church with some real problems. One guy in particular, um, he had, had uh, uh, tried to commit suicide even a handful of times during his time in Spokane. He, he was from California, and, and uh, he asked to meet with me. And and this was going to be the first of many meetings. And, and among the kinds of things that he, that he shared that he had in his life that he struggled with were, one, a same-sex attraction, same-sex desires. Um, another one was uh, he had extreme anger and, and extreme bitterness um, and, and often prone to crippling bouts of depression to the extent that he, again, tried to commit suicide several, several times. Um, he uh, heard voices in his head that would tell him to do various things, and 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 so it, the and and he was on dozens and dozens of medications. Not kidding. I mean, this, this this guy was a mess. And so, as we met over over a series of of meetings, um, I just I just had him share and uh, you know just asked him questions, just just spill spill it all out, tell me everything, and and he did. And and as he as he proceeded to unfold the the saga, the sad, depressing saga of his life, and he knew it was too. It, it became really really clear that all of the things that he struggled with, same-sex desires and attractions, voices in his head, uh, suicidal thoughts, all of those things were, were tragic to be sure, but what they were was a symptom of a deeper issue. Th- those weren't the problem. Those were the surface issues, a result of something else deeper. And, and I did something really crazy. It, in talking with him, I said, you know, I feel that everything that you're sharing with me about the things that you struggle with, same-sex desires, and I, and I named through the list, I said, all of those tell me that the deepest solution to, to, all, to, to what's going on in your life is that, is that you don't understand the Trinity. And he just kind of looked at me, it's like, 
Seriously? Yeah, seriously. I think, I think the issue is that you don't understand who God is. I said, tell me who the Trinity is. Explain him to me. And out of his mouth unfolded one of the most unbelievably profound and, and theologically precise but cold definitions of the Trinity. And I was like, is that, is, that, is that who God is to you? Yeah. It's like, well, that's accurate. It's like, but, but, so what I did is I took him to John 17 and, and had him read out loud the prayer of Christ to the Father and, and these interactions and, and all of a sudden it became clear to him that he had no idea who God was, Father, Son, and Spirit, and that what was a, a very cold and distant reality for him um, actually was something completely different than he had always thought. Um, and so that seems strange to do biblical counseling with the Trinity, but I really believe that, that what we need in our lives, first and foremost, first order of business is that we need to understand who God is. And so tonight, we are going to climb into the heights, the Trinitarian heights of who God is. What we're going to do is we're going we're to push our feeble abilities of comprehension to their limits as we take a breathtaking tour through the landscape of the Trinity. So I really feel like tonight, in a lot of ways, we're going to feel like little ants at the, at the foot of Mount Everest, just kind of gaping up at who God is. And, and, and that's a good thing. That is good for us. And you have to understand that, that as Christians, we don't worship a bland and generic, ambiguous deity. It's not enough for us to say that, that we worship a higher power or, um, or a, uh, an intelligent designer. That, that's not enough. See, what we have to remember is that God, the only God, the God of the Bible, has revealed himself as a trinity. And, and contrary to what so many people think, that God's triune nature is not some cold, academic, merely intellectual endeavor. It's, it's not that. Rather, it is life-changing and soul-satisfying. And, and believe it or not, God's triune nature has profound ramifications for life and reality and marriage and ministry and eternity. You see, I really believe that the world only actually makes sense if you see it through the lenses of a triune God at the center. It makes sense of marriage. It makes sense of parenting. It makes sense of relationships. It makes sense of so many things in life. See, we just, we just breathe a Trinitarian air. And it's true that in human mathematics, one plus one plus one does not equal one. But in Trinitarian mathematics, it totally works. One plus one plus one does equal one. And, and if you think that the Trinity has no real weight or bearing or significance or, or even risk, like there's nothing risky about talking about the Trinity, well, you should know that there once was a time in history when people were killed for believing what we're talking about tonight. They were. And there are significant portions of the world where people are killed who believe that God is a trinity. So the stakes are high. So what, what we're doing here, th- this is abnormal that we have the ability to talk about the trinity in such, in such public ways. So, so here's the purpose of, of what we're going to do tonight. Um, I want you not only to be educated about the trinity, I want you to be exhilarated by the trinity. I not only want you to be instructed about the Trinity, I want you to be infatuated with the Trinity. Not only taught about the Trinity, but transformed by the Trinity. 
That's what we're after. And so tonight's going to be divided up into four parts. Here's where we're going. Part one is what I'm calling martyr affirmations. Martyr affirmations. In other words, these are affirmations about the Trinity uh, that we would affirm uh, even in the face of death. So we would not deny these. These are things that we would affirm. Part two are what I'm calling martyr denials. These are things that we would deny even when faced with death. Uh, Part three, we're going to uh, look at the landscape of the Trinity in Scripture. In other words, we're going to start in Genesis and we're going to work all the way through to the book of Revelation and we're going to look at the Trinity. So we're going to look at dozens and dozens of passages. You're going to be exhausted. You're going to sleep so well tonight because of this. You're welcome. And then uh, finally, we're going to conclude with Uh, implications about the Trinity. 22 implications about the Trinity, by the way. So just to prove to you ad nauseum that this really is practical. We'll see if we get to all 22. Okay, so part number one, the martyr affirmations. You ready? Martyr affirmations. Um, Again, these are Trinitarian affirmations for which we will defend even if faced with death. So martyr affirmation number one. And by the way, this is Everything that I'm about to say in the next few minutes, you already know this is not new to you at all, but reaffirming. So martyr affirmation number one. There has been only one God who has existed for all eternity. Point number one. There's only been one God who has existed for all eternity. See, the Bible is unanimous and unambiguous and unflinchingly rigid in in its insistence that there is one and only one God. So not, not two, not millions, there's only one. So a couple texts, Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, there was no God formed and there will be none after me. I am Yahweh and there is no savior besides me. So God could not be more clear about that. Look, there's me and there's nobody else, period. Isaiah 45, 5 and 6, I am Yahweh and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Verse 22, I am Yahweh, there is no other. Isaiah 46, 9, remember the former things long past for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Over and over again. And and it's really interesting, if you look, there are dozens of verses like that in chapters Isaiah 40 through 49, just filled with the exclusivity of Yahweh, the theological reason for that. And then 1 Corinthians 8, 4 uh, says, uh, there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. So that's easy, that's basic. We know that we're all agreed that, that the Bible, as Trinitarians, we do not and have never believed in three gods, but only in one. So that's, we affirm that. Martyr affirmation number two. Get some more definition here. God has eternally existed as three separate but equal persons. So there's only one God, we, we get that, but he has eternally existed as three separate but equal persons. So in other words, in in some unfathomable mystery, God is one, but simultaneously more than one. God is God alone, and yet he is not alone. 
Because what we see in the Bible is that you have three separate but equal persons who are unique and distinct from one another, and yet there is only one God. And we see glimpses and hints of this even in the Old Testament. Listen very carefully to Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Psalm 45, 6 and 7. And, and by the way, if we had access to a printer that could print out a bunch of stuff, I would have notes for you, so we'll, we'll do our best to, to follow along. So listen to Psalm 45, 6 and 7. It's speaking to God, and it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And a scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. Well, that's very interesting. Did you catch that? The, the psalm writer is speaking to God, and, and he addresses God as having an eternal throne and an upright kingdom, but one verse later, the psalm writer speaks to God about his God. In, psalm, in the psalms, this is, this is incredible. So you have two different people in the same passage spoken of as God. That's, that's very interesting. And when you read, when you read the, the ancient rabbis and, and what they do with that, they are very squishy and they're not really sure what to do with that. Ooh, they kind of they back off and um, you know, they, they, they come up with all sorts of really, really creative sort of Aesop's fables ways of, of, of explaining that away. But, but uh, there is plenty of room in Old Testament theology to see that there is a plurality of persons in one God. And then take... Text like this, Matthew 3, 16 and 17, which is the baptism of Christ. Listen very carefully. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and hovering over him. And behold, a voice out of the heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, obviously that text by itself doesn't say everything there is to say about the Trinity, but it's very interesting that what we have is we have uh, Jesus being baptized, we have the Spirit of God descending, and we have the Father speaking from heaven. Again, that text, in the context of all biblical revelation, we've got to give an account for that. Who, what is going on here? Well, what we see when we look at all of biblical revelation is that each one of those persons is attributed uh, as divine throughout Scripture. Or take uh, John fourteen twenty six. Again, I'm just I'm just picking texts that speak of all three persons of the Trinity. John fourteen twenty six. The the upper room. Christ is upstairs with his disciples, and he keeps talking about the Trinity. And he says, "But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you." So we've got the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, and he will teach you all things about me. So there's this Trinitarian intricacy, this, this network going on where, where we have various roles and, and things that each person of the Trinity is doing. And then you just take texts like Ephesians 2.18. My, my point in picking the text that I do is that the Trinity is just so pervasive there are dozens and dozens and dozens of texts where all three appear. And there are even more where two out of the three appear. 
So in my original notes, it was about 200 pages where I looked, where I found every single text in the Bible that had two or more persons of the Trinity. There's just so much. So Ephesians 2.18, this, this great discourse on salvation. And at the end of it, Paul says, for through him, that is Christ, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Do you hear all three persons? For through Christ, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. He took one verse, uh, a handful of Greek words, and crammed into it the doctrine of the Trinity, really profound stuff. So that's martyr affirmation number two, that God has eternally existed as three separate but equal persons. Now, we get a little more definition, martyr affirmation number three. Each person of the Trinity is fully, equally, and eternally God. Each person of the Trinity is fully, equally, and eternally God. Again, not three persons, but uh, not three gods, but three persons who are each fully, equally, and eternally God. In other words, God the Father is not the supreme deity, while the Son and the Spirit are sort of like second-rate discount deities over over here, like less than God, which is actually um, uh, what a lot of Eastern Orthodox doctrine believes, that the Father is the supreme deity and the source, while the Son is a little bit less deity than the Father. No, that's, that's, that's heresy. That doesn't work. You see, everything that makes God who he is is fully and equally possessed by every person of the Trinity. And so the Father is God. Obviously, I don't probably need to spend a lot of time on that. Um, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for him. Well, that's not hard to affirm. We see that, okay, God, the Father, we get that. But things get a little more defined when we talk about when we say that the Son is God. So here's some texts on, on the deity of Christ. Again, there's Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Remember the psalm I just quoted where two different people in the same text are called God? What's really interesting is that the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 cites that text and says, guess what, everybody? That was talking about Christ. That text, Psalm 45, the inspired writer of Hebrews says that is about Christ. This, that's a Trinitarian verse attributing deity to the Son. The same thing with Psalm 110. Do you remember Psalm 110? Here's the verse. Literally, it says, Yahweh declares to Adonai. Yahweh Adonai. Those are Hebrew words for God, right? In English, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, Yahweh says to Adonai. Who's Yahweh? Well, that's obvious. We, we know that. But who's Adonai? He must be pretty important because Yahweh says to him, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then the Psalm 110 goes on to describe that Adonai would be a king and he would come to earth and he would shatter the kings on the earth and establish his kingdom. And he calls him Adonai. You don't call just anybody Adonai. Well, what's interesting is in Matthew 22, Christ uh, is in a uh, sort of a, a fisticuffs with the Pharisees. And he seeks to prove his deity to the Pharisees. And guess which text he quoted? Psalm 110. Says that is about me. And he stumped him. Do you remember the text? He says, he says well, you know, uh, if the Messiah is only a man, then why does, why does David call him God in the psalm? And the Pharisees went, ah, oh, 
Um, uh, so I'm, we're just going to go now. They, they, did, they couldn't argue with him anymore because that text clearly attributes deity to the Messiah. But here's some really explicit ones. Still in the Old Testament, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. It's not a Christmas verse. This is, this, is a, this is a glorious verse we should read all the time. For to us, a child will be born, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Okay, this is clearly a, a messianic prophecy. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts shall accomplish this. So whoever this descendant of David would be, he would be El Gabor, mighty God. Undeniable, the Messiah would be deity. John 1, I want to spend a little more time on the deity of Christ here. This is really Big John 1, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So it's interesting, again, two different people in the same text attributed as God. It's really interesting, chapter 1, verse 18, we we kind of forget what, what comes a little bit later. Listen to what he says. No one has seen God ever. The only God who is in the presence of the Father, he has explained him. That's John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. The only God has explained him. Whoa. Holy smokes. This, this, is, this is incredible. What, what, I mean, the thing about John is he is deceptively simple. Just says these things, and it's like, oh, it's really easy to understand. The Greek is really simple, but the realities embedded within are, are mind-blowing. John 20, 28, remember Thomas, when he saw Christ, the resurrected Christ, he said, my Lord and my God. Acts 20, 28, listen to this. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Wait, who's the he? Shepherd shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Who is the he referring to? Right, right. But in in the text, who is it pointing directly back to? Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Who is it referring back to? To God. You see, Paul just attributes deity to him. Titus 2.13. Luke and I were looking at this uh, the other day at at Starbucks. The, The deity of Christ, looking for the blessed hope and the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's everywhere, the deity of Christ. More texts I could, I could take you to, but um, again, we're still on the martyr affirmation that each person is equally, fully, and eternally God. Now, the Spirit is God. This is um, uh, not as headline-ish as the deity of Christ, but still the, the Bible is clear that the Spirit is in fact God. You take uh, David's prayer in Psalm 139, 7 and 8, and he says, Where can I go from your Spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Notice how, how David equates spirit and, and presence. So God's presence, that is to be in, the, in, in a divine presence, is to be with God. Well, he equates those two. So automatically, he's, he's indicating that the spirit is not some impersonal force like electricity, but is in fact divine. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. I I think the the point is not only does he have personality, but he has divine attributes like omnipresence. Um, 
the sake of time. Uh, here's another one. And again, this doesn't prove everything, but it, it says something very interesting. Matthew 28. I'm skipping text for the sake of time, but um, the, the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, notice the singular, name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And we just kind of read by that and go like, okay, that's really cool. Go, you know, go therefore. And, and yet why in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Why that? I mean, that's got to be pretty important, right? And it is. And so, and so uh, th- there's any Greek reader would have, would have read those words and he would have seen that, that the Greek word and, it equates the nouns as being equal. So uh, name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Th- those in Greek, the grammar is demanding that those, each of those are equal. And, and it's really interesting that all three are, it's not the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the name singular of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So my point is very simply this. The name equates the persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, as equal, and yet at the exact same time differentiates them as different persons because the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and so on and so forth. They are uh, different persons. And the Father is God, the Son is clearly identified as God, and if they are equated, then the Spirit must also be God all, uh, as well. Again, that doesn't say everything about the Spirit, but here's some other text as well. Acts 5, verses 3 and 4. Remember that? Ananias and Sapphira, early church, made a really big deal, really, really big stink about how, you know, how generous they were, and oh yeah, we gave such and such money, and, and they didn't count on Peter uh, could have this, a certain gift as an apostle to be able to sniff out when, you know, things like that were going down, and so God killed people at church. I mean, that's crazy, right? And, and, and so Peter says, Ananias Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back some of the price of the land? You you lied to the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Do you see what he did there? Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, you've lied to God. See what he does there? He's indicating he's he's deliberately being not careful in how he speaks about the Spirit in the sense that he's equating him as God. The clearest text, however, is 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Listen very carefully. Paul just flat out attributes to him deity. Listen to what he says. Now the Lord is the Spirit. There it is. The Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, is freedom. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed uh, into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, in the same passage, he refers to Christ as the Lord, then he refers to the Spirit as the Lord. So, uh, Paul identifies the Spirit clearly as God. Another text we don't have time to look at is Hebrews 9, 14 and 1 Peter 4, 14. So I really believe that, that it's clear that, that all three persons of the Trinity are attributed as, as deity, as divine, as God. So I, that took a lot for martyr affirmation number three. Sorry, not sorry, had to be done. Okay, martyr affirmation number four. This is the last martyr affirmation. Okay, we're good. Uh, this is very important. Listen carefully. 
we, we have established that God exists as three separate but equal persons, and, and each person is equally God. So far, so good? It's very important. Number four is, what makes each person of the Trinity different from one another is not their character or their essence or their worth or their perfections, but rather what makes each person of the Trinity different from one another is each one's particular role in the plan of salvation. Now, that was all one sentence. I know that was kind of a mouthful, but but do you get where I'm going with this? What makes them different is not their worth or value or their attributes that they possess, right? Because each person of the Trinity all possesses all of the attributes that make them fully God. So on that level, as far as deity, they're all equal. But they're, they're not the same, right? The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. These are different persons. You see, what makes the persons of the Trinity different from one another is their particular role in the plan of salvation. So, so Luke, are you and your wife equal before God? Yes. Yes. Good, 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 good comeback. He was trying to be humble. He's trying to be humble. You know what? We all married up, man. We, we get that. Um, so, so, so we are equal, you are equal with your wife before God in terms of, you know, you know, Christ paid the same price for you and, and, um, but are your roles in marriage the same? No, there's a difference, right? So, so there is equality in the Trinity, but there is difference in the Trinity. So let me put it to this way. Uh, each person of the Trinity is equal, but different. They are similar, but they are not the same. They are alike, but they are not identical. Because again, what makes them each different from one another is their unique role in the plan of salvation. So let me ask you this, I'll uh, put you on the spot here. Um, What are some things in the Bible uh, uh, that you see attributed to the Father as things that he does in, in the plan of salvation. Well, what does the Father do in the plan of salvation? Can you think of anything the Father does in particular? I know I'm springing a question on you, so I don't mind the silence. Think about it if you need. What do you see the Father doing in the plan of salvation? What's his role? The he, he's the creator. What's that? Drawing people to Christ, exactly. John six forty four. no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Well done. What else? He chose us, absolutely. Ephesians 1.4, just as we have been chosen, i.e. by God, in Christ. Right? There's another thing over here. He sent, he sent uh, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Precisely. John 14.26, John 15.26, very clear. Yeah, excellent. What else? Father's role. He Precisely. Acts chapter 1, verse 6, right? The, 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 the plan that the Father has determined in eternity past. Now, what about the Son? What is the Son's role in the plan of salvation? What does He do in particular? Precisely. He, he, like he's, the, he's the one who executes the plan of salvation, makes it happen, uh, actualizes what was predestined by His death and resurrection and everything else. Excellent. Well, someone else had something over here. Makes the Father known. 
makes the Father known, absolutely, reveals who God is. That's, that's you know, he is the, uh, Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature, right? He displays who the Father is. What else? It's the coming king, absolutely. He is the, the, the one who will physically reign on the planet as the Messiah, right? Redeemer. He's a redeemer, absolutely. Absolutely, right? What is that? Uh, Hebrews 4, I want to say 16, and Romans 8, 30-something, um, 34, I believe, that he is the one who intercedes for us, right? Absolutely. And even Isaiah 53, uh, verse 15, he intercedes for us. Obviously, he's the one who, who came as a substitute and died in the place of hell, deserving sinners, right? So, so on, and many other things we could say. All right, what about the Spirit's role in the plan of salvation? Do we know that as well? What is the Spirit's role? What is, what is, for what things is he responsible? What's that? He's our helper, absolutely. Yeah, again, John fourteen twenty six and sixteen three, and um, among others. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, John chapter sixteen, right? Christ unfolds that. Very good. And what else? Precisely, absolutely. So you remember Paul's prayer, this Trinitarian prayer in, in Ephesians 3, right? It says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom uh, every family derives its name, that the Father would give you, uh, uh, what does he say, uh, that you would be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner man so that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. Whoa, so we see that the Spirit's role is he is the mediating agency who supplies the power that we need to do what the Father commands. Yeah, very good. Now, what else? He indwells us. Yeah, which is a, which is a really big deal, which, which in the Old Testament, that they couldn't conceive of that. This, was, this is what made the New Covenant so kind of like, whoa, whoa, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 26, talks about that, that God would place his spirit within people rather than just upon people, empowering them for temporary times for specific things. He would actually dwell within them. Other things that he is the one who regenerates us, right? He, he causes us to be born again. John six sixty five. the spirit is the one who makes alive. Um, also Titus 3, 5. So, so lots of other things. So you can see, you can see that the, the Bible is really clear that they all have different particular roles in the plan of salvation. It's really breathtaking stuff. So that's martyr affirmation number four. Um, and, and those are the martyr affirmations total. Uh, should I do this now? Yeah, I'll take a couple questions if you have them at this point. What do you got for me? Yeah, Teague. You said that they have different roles in salvation. Um, they have, do they have just have different roles in that? Or like they have different roles in general, sort of, right? I mean, in other things too? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's all connected. But so his question is, if you didn't hear it, uh, you know, Teague said, okay, well, you said they have different roles in the plan of salvation. Do they just have different roles in general? Um, so maybe we could put it this way. If there never was a plan of salvation, would they have different roles? Maybe that's not what you're asking, but it's another way to ask it. And the answer would be yes. The answer would be yes. So we, we do see that, that the nature of who they are as distinct persons demands that they have different roles. 
So some of it in here, you kind of get into the white spaces and like, well, what, is, what does it look like? I'm not really sure. Um, but yeah, so in the universe, with or without a plan of salvation, they have distinct roles according to who they are, their individual uh, identities, identities as persons of the Trinity. That's a good question. Yeah, what else? Anything so far? Okay, keep writing down questions if you got them. All right, yeah, yeah, go, Vicky, go ahead. Yeah. And he's in us. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's kind of a big deal, right? Yeah, it's a very big deal. Yeah. Yeah, to the degree, and, and you, you think of Paul's, um, the ramifications of that in 1 Corinthians 6.18 through 20, he says, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who, who you have from God who is in you? Therefore, glorify God in your body. And, and so he makes it really clear that, that sexual sin, in particular, which he highlights, it's like, that's, that's not what we do. Why? Because you have the spirit of the living God in you. Like, you, you would never go spray paint the temple in the Old Testament or go in and, you know, throw a, a bag of garbage into the Holy of Holies. Like, well, you would just never do that. Well, it's like, well, then why, why, would, why would sexual sin, why would you engage in sexual sin? That's, that's his point. Yeah, did you have a follow-up? Go ahead. Yeah. Right. Well, you, you could derive that based on the amount of time given to him, right? Yeah. And and we'll we'll talk about that. Well, is now the time. I'll put it this way. Um the there there is a probably a good and a bad reason for that. So a bad reason for that is maybe just people don't know and they're not really un, un, they don't really understand who the spirit is and and, and he seems kind of like strange. We don't know how to speak about him. But I think there is another aspect where the Spirit has taken a willing backstage role in the plan of salvation. Because who is the centerpiece of the plan? Christ is, right? And, and uh, Christ makes it really, really clear in John 14 through 16, especially that the Spirit's role, picture it this way, if the plan of salvation is the stage, the, the Father is the one directing the whole play. I mean, he, he, is, he is orchestrating the whole thing. Christ is on center stage, spotlights on him, everybody's seeing him, and the Spirit is the one who pulls back the curtain so that everybody can see who he is. That's his role. So he's taken a willing backstage role so that Christ can be put on display. So, well, I didn't make it up. So I, I probably stole it from somewhere. So, but, but, but see, it makes sense. So, so the Spirit, let me put it this way, the Spirit does not want to be glorified except for his role as the one who puts Christ on display. So, so I would say that people who make like 90% of their talk about God, the Holy Spirit, it's like that's, that's, a, little, that's a little bottom heavy. They, they need to make Christ the center. And yet, and yet, we must not be father forgetting or spirit ignoring at the same time. So we'll, we'll get to that at the end. Okay, all right, uh, part two. Ready for this? Martyr denials. Martyr denials. I'm gonna have to go quick because I'm, I'm running out of time here. Uh, again, these are denials about the Trinity. These are things that we will deny even when faced with death. Like these are real deal breakers, okay? So martyr denial number one. You ready? Here's the thing that we will deny even if it cost us our lives. We deny modalism. We deny modalism. 
Can anyone tell me what modalism is? What's modalism? It's really one God, one person that just has three roles that they play. So it's yeah. really just one God, one person. Sometimes he's God the Father. Sometimes yes. he's God the there Son. It is. Sometimes he's God the Spirit. But yep. it's really just the Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so if you didn't hear that, there's just one person. There's not three persons. There's one person. And sometimes he reveals himself as the Father, sometimes as the Son, sometimes as the Spirit. So uh, you can't paint everyone with this brush, but there's, the, there's a, a denomination of Pentecostals called Oneness Pentecostalism. And again, Oneness Pentecostalism that they're defining as a major uh, doctrine of their denomination that God is only one person. So uh, even T.D. Jakes is a, is a if you, he's just up the road, right? He's uh, a, a closet uh, a modalist, so very squishy on his, on his doctrine of, uh, of the Trinity. Martyr denial number two. These will go pretty fast. Martyr denial number two. We deny subordinationism. We deny, even when faced with death, subordinationism. Now, now what, he, what word do you hear in that? Subordinate, right? And what does subordinate mean? Lesser, right? So anything that in any way indicates that the Son or Spirit are lesser than the Father, we're going to reject out of hand and say, that's, that's heresy. Not, there's a lot of things that don't, we don't have to call heresy, but this... This is one of them. This we should. And so Mormons and, and Jehovah's Witnesses, they would be subordinationists. So again, we deny the spirit that the son, we deny the teaching that the Son and the Spirit are in any way inferior or lesser or subordinate uh, to the Father. So the Son and the Spirit are not demigods or, or discount deities in the Trinity. Right? They are equal, uh, all equal to one another. Uh, martyr denial number three. We deny tritheism. We deny tritheism, which literally means three gods. We deny three gods. So, so what, what cult in America believes in three gods or uh, primarily three gods? Who, who believes that? LDS, LDS, Latter-day Saints. So they would be considered tritheists, not true tritheists, they're they believe in millions and millions and millions of gods, but they, they affirm the three primary gods of this earth, Father, Son, and Spirit. So we, we reject that. And then martyr denial number four, we deny Arianism. We deny Arianism. Uh, and uh, this, so this would be like Jehovah's Witnesses. They would be Arians. And, and so Arianism comes from a guy named Arius. And, and who knows for a thousand imaginary points uh, who is Arius? Does anyone remember who Arius is? Who is he? Arius was a, a presbyter, I think, in Alexandria. Uh-huh. And he preached, he took scripture and he looked at uh, Proverbs, where it says, Wisdom is the first creation of God. He looked at Corinthians, where it said, Christ is the wisdom of God. And yeah, he said, yeah. Ah, Christ, therefore, must be created. Yeah, yeah. And I forget what, the, what it is in Greek, but he said, At one time, uh, there was a time when he was not. Yeah. And that was his, his little saying about there was a time when Jesus didn't exist. Jesus is a created being. Yeah. So in Greek, ein pata hata uk ein kai prin genestai uk ein kai hati ex uk anton agenata. That's what you were talking about. <laughs> yeah, come on, Rich. Rich, go sit in the corner and think about what you've done here. Um, what's that? Yes, you do. Well done. Well done. In the kingdom, I will give you a thousand imaginary points. 
Uh, so again, so this is any teaching that says that Christ was a created being or there once was a time when he was not. Okay, so, so we outright deny that. Okay, and then finally, martyr denial number five, we deny Unitarianism. Unitarianism, so that would be Islam or any Unitarians, uh, which says that uh, God exists only as one person. And if you only believe in one person, you automatically deny the deity of the Son and the Spirit. Okay, so those are the martyr affirmations. Those are the martyr denials. Let me leave you with a final, not leave you, but let me finish this section with a uh, final definition of the Trinity. You ready? And don't even bother writing this down. This is just absorb. Okay, God is a Trinity in that he has eternally existed as three separate but equal persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Each is fully God. Each is equally God, each is eternally God, and yet there is only one God. And again, um, I think we have to say each person possesses uh, the identically same attributes that makes each one fully God, and yet what makes them different from one another are their Um, roles and responsibilities in the plan of salvation. Okay, so that's everything we just heard condensed down into two really, really long sentences. And and then for parents here, or or for grandkids, um, you know, I think think we should should be honest with our kids about about who God is. And and, um, uh, when, even when our kids were really little, here's how I defined God for them. Who is God? And then I taught them to say, God is Father, God is Son, or God, God is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's who God is. Just, just start there. And then I would say, and who is Jesus? And then I would have them repeat, Jesus is God. Just so they, so I, I wanted my kids to be good Trinitarians, and, and you know, I wanted them to, to live with the mystery of there's only one God. God is Father, Son, and Spirit, and I wanted them to know the centrality of Christ, the one who is God. Okay, so that's, that's parts uh, one and two over. We now move to part three, which is by far the most important part of this, and uh, what, which I'm calling the Trinity in the landscape of Scripture. The Trinity in the landscape of Scripture. In other words, what this is, is a biblical theology of the Trinity. In other words, we're going to start in Genesis, and we're going to go all the way through Revelation. We may or may not get out of here by midnight. We will see. Apologies ahead of time. But uh, we, we really need to see this because the question is, how can we prove that what we just said is true? Like, how can we know? Like, how can we actually defend what we just talked about from the pages of Scripture? Because if we can't, then what's the point? Because the, the most important question of life is this. Are you ready? This is, I'm not even kidding. No exaggeration. This is the most important question of life. Here it is. What does the text say? That's the most important question ever. Because what the text says determines everything. It determines everything. What you believe about God and salvation and eternity and reality and, and sin and who we are. That, that determines everything. So we need to know, okay, where in the Bible is the Trinity spoken about? And, 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 and here's a note for, for parents or if, if grandparents want to do this with your grandkids. Um, I would say as we talk about certain texts, I would say jot those down and then I would say you can use these for your family Bible time in the morning or evening or whenever it is that you, that you do them. And I would say read texts that have all three persons of the Trinity and, and have your kids listen for each person of the Trinity. And then ask them, okay, what, do you, what did you hear about the Father from this text? 
What did you hear about the Son from this text? What did you hear about the Spirit from this text? And just get them to, to begin to see the, the um, uh, uh, look at, through the Trinitarian lenses of the Bible. Just help your kids see that there's a lot of stuff there about the Trinity. And so you can, you can use even these um, to, to work through with your kids as for family devotion time. All right, but let, let, me, let me begin by saying this before we do a, a, a biblical theology of the Trinity. If you had never heard of the Trinity, let's say, and you were reading the Bible for the very first time and you were by yourself on some deserted island or whatever and, and you're, you're reading the Bible from beginning to end, what conclusion about God would you be forced to come to? Do you see the scenario? I'm, I'm unfolding here. You've never heard of the Trinity. You've never read the Bible. You're beginning, starting at the beginning, ending at the end. What conclusions about God would you be forced to come to? I think you'd come to two conclusions. One, there is only one God who has ever existed. The Bible is just, just unanimous, unflinchingly clear about that. But conclusion number two, you would come away with more than one person, sometimes even in the same passage is called God. Those are the conclusions I think you'd come to. You'd have to. There's only one God, and yet there's lots and lots and lots of places where more than one person is called God. So therefore, you would be forced to conclude that God is one, and yet simultaneously more than one. You would be forced to conclude that that God is God alone, and yet he is not alone. And so here's a, a biblical theology of the Trinity. And let's begin where, where all stories begin, that is, in the beginning. And, and so we'll start in the Old Testament. And, and I really liken uh, the Trinity in the Old Testament to those little sketches of da Vinci. Have you ever seen, I mean, you've seen da Vinci paintings, but have you seen the little sketches, those little practice sketches upon which his paintings were based? So when Sarah and I lived in L.A., we would oftentimes go to the Getty Art Museum, which is this incredible really cool art museum and they had like Van Gogh and Monet and Picasso and all kinds of really cool stuff but in one room they had these little sketches of of da Vinci and it was what was remarkable about them is that there was uh, they were he was so good that with the most minimal amount of markings with a pencil you could totally see what the object was I mean it wasn't like he was putting a lot of shading a lot of detail very little detail and you, you, you could tell exactly what he was doing. You tell exactly what he was drawing. And I really feel like the Trinity in the Old Testament is like those little sketches of da Vinci. They're, they're partial, they're, they're incomplete, they're not the finished product with oil and the full definition and shading and all of the, all of the, um, you know, all of the dimensions that the painting has, but you can still totally tell what the picture is. That's the Trinity in the Old Testament. You could totally tell something's going on here. Something is going on. I can tell what that is. I can't necessarily explain it fully, but there's something going on. So it's worth viewing. My point is it's worth viewing the sketches of the Trinity in the Old Testament. So let's begin in the Pentateuch. And the Pentateuch is? First five books of the Bible, right? So again, I'm only going to cover a little, little tiny bit, just a few things. So uh, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. Everyone knows it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Okay, it's interesting. 
Now, what I find really fascinating about this is that grammatically, God is the subject here. So I I think it's really interesting and telling that the first subject of Genesis and the first subject of the Bible is God. It's it's not us. The Bible is not about us. You know, God is not a platform to, to making people really special in the universe. I mean, God loves us to be sure. The object of his affection, but the Bible is not about us at all. It is about God. He's not some footnote or supporting uh, role in the drama of salvation. He's the main attraction on center stage. And, and I think from Genesis 1, 1 and 2, you can come away with three observations. One, God transcends his creation. That is, he's different from his creation. He's not, a pen, he's not dependent upon his creation. He's outside of it. Number two, he precedes his creation, as in he existed before it. He brought it into being. And number three, he is not alone. He's not alone. Because in verse two, we see this mysterious Ruach Elohim. I didn't just clear my throat here. There, That, that was Hebrew. That, that, that is the spirit of God in Hebrew, the Ruach Elohim. And so isn't it interesting to you that the spirit of God makes an appearance in the second verse of the Bible? It's very interesting. And so the question is, who is this? Who is this? Or or, or maybe the other question to ask is, okay, who did Moses and the people of Israel think that he was? That's that's the question. Because as new covenant believers in Christ, we really have the convenience on this side of things to look back through biblical history and go, well, of course, of course, it's God the Spirit, third person of the Trinity. But what did they think? And and yet, yet we can't just assume that Moses and the people of Israel were kind of like, I don't know, I I just report the facts, I just wrote it, I don't know what that means, Uh, I guess we'll see. Because it's very interesting, Job, Job, in the book of Job, he knew really profound, specific things about who the Holy Spirit was, and he existed centuries before Moses did. He knew really specific things. How did he know? I think, I think it was uh, authentic believers in the true God passing down their teachings, specifically parents to their kids, teaching about who the true God is. So, so those things were passed down. And so I think if, if Moses were reading Genesis and, and the people of Israel said, okay, uh, they blew a whistle, okay, hold on, hold on, who is Ruach Elohim? Who, who is that? I think Moses would say something like this, maybe. Uh, I think he would say, okay, our God, let me just tell you, our God is, is profoundly mysterious and in many ways incomprehensible. There's so much about him that, that we don't know and, and we will continue to learn about him forever and ever and ever and yet what we see here in the text, at the very least, that God is God alone and yet he is not alone. I think what we see here is that um, although God is one, he's simultaneously more than one. Something like that. And maybe he would have just unfolded them the whole deck of cards. Okay, let me just tell you, so God is a trinity. Maybe he unfolded that to them. Um, but, but at the very least, we, we, see, we, we get a whiff of something's going on. First couple of verses of the Bible. All right, here's, here's another thing in, in the Pentateuch of which we need to be aware. The plurals of Genesis. The plurals of Genesis. In other words, do you remember those passages throughout Genesis where God refers to himself as we and us and our? Now that's that's very interesting. And let me just say this, that those texts by themselves, those don't prove the Trinity by themselves because nothing says that it's three persons, right? There's nothing that says that. It doesn't say how many persons. It just gives the indication that there's there's plurality. 
But I think what those texts do is I think they set us on a trajectory to see that who we see in Genesis, the we and the our and the us, that eventually the who we see, oh, okay, on this side of things, that does make sense. Okay, we see a plurality of persons in God and now uh, of whom now we know is the Trinity. So I could say more about that, but... I, want to, I have some other texts I want to get to. All right, so here's, here's an interesting one. Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4. Um, people use this text as a way to, especially Muslims, to, to combat and, and argue against the idea of God being a trinity. Deuteronomy 6.4. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. So hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. And let's say, see, see, Yahweh is one. There's, there's no way that God is a trinity. And yet, and yet, does that, does that text disprove anything about the trinity? Does, does that say anything at all? Here, and I would say not at all. Here's the follow, here's, here are the reasons. That same word one in Hebrew, echad, meaning means one, that the exact same term is used in Genesis 2 verse 24 to describe Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, becoming one in marriage. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? They're two different people, but yet they are Echad. They are one. So apparently, the word Echad can't merely mean a mathematical unity. That, that you can have something that's one and simultaneously more than one. And, and what we have to understand about that term echad, I mean, sure, you could use it as, okay, there's one apple on the table. You can use it that way. But oftentimes in Hebrew, echad would be, would be used as a designation of supremacy. It was used as a, as a designation of exclusivity. Um, you know, uh, look, yeah, basically it'd be the equivalent of saying, look, Yahweh is the one. He is the Echad. He is the only God, and there is no other God besides him. And yet within that Echad, within the one, there can be more than one. Um, and we see that because Christ says some things in, in the Gospels that sound remarkably like the Shema, the Deuteronomy 6.4, and yet he inserts himself into that because even within the one God, you can have plurality of persons. Okay, I know I'm, I'm flying here. Um, let's go to the prophets, um, Isaiah nine, six and seven. Okay. Here's, what's really interesting about that. Uh, Isaiah nine, six and seven, we have, uh, El Gibor, right? We have the Messiah called mighty God. And, um, and, and you may have wondered, let me, let me say one thing about this. Remember how it said that he is also called eternal father. It's like, well, okay. So, and, and actually oneness Pentecostals, uh, we'll actually use this text and say, well, see, see, there, you know, God reveals himself sometimes as father, sometimes as son, sometimes as spirit. There, there it is. He's called the father. So Christ is the father. Well, that, that's not what that means. He is the eternal father in the sense that he has all of the attributes of the kind of father that you would ha- want to have as your own. He is eternal in nature, and yet he is like a father in the sense that he is loving and caring and affectionate. And, and, and it can't possibly mean, even the text itself rules out the possibility that, that the father and son are conflated together. Here's why. And I think I mentioned this earlier. But it says, uh, uh, again, in that prophecy, guess who is speaking? Yahweh is. 
Yahweh is speaking. Yahweh is the one talking about this one who is mighty God to come because the last sentence of uh, that passage says, Kenat Yahweh Tzavot Ta'asezot, which means... Um, which means the zeal of Yahweh of hosts shall do this. So you have El Gabor, you have mighty God and Yahweh in the same passage. So, so even within that passage, there is a distinction between the two. So that's, that's of, by its nature, Trinitarian. Um, and again, be writing down any questions you have about, about any of these things. Here's an, here's an interesting one. Do we have time for this? Probably not. Um... It's so hard to choose. You, you know, you, you, you feel my pain up here. All right, so there's, there, I have several uh, seven, eight, nine texts in the, in the Minor Prophets that, that, have, that are Trinitarian in nature. Uh, in the Psalms, you have Psalm 2. We won't look at that, but Psalm 2, there's, there are uh, divine realities given to the Messiah and, and yet Yahweh is there also, so we see plurality of persons. Again, Psalm 45, 6 and 7, that, that's a biggie, that's a slam dunk. Psalm 110, 1 uh, and following, which we looked at earlier. Uh, and then, we, we won't look at it now, but, but Pro- Proverbs 30, verse 4. So, so take note of that and look it up later. It's this tantalizing, wonderful little verse where, um, you know, it's by this guy named Augur. You know, what, what a dope name. Um, and actually what I love, one of my, my during, when uh, I graduated seminary, we did these senior testimonies and I said, well, my, my theme verse for my life is, is Proverbs 30 verse two the guys are kind of waiting. I said, Proverbs 30 verse two says this, surely I am more stupid than any man. And I do not have the understanding of a man. There's, there's my life verse. That's an encouraging verse for you. But his point is, his point is why he says that is because he proceeds to unfold these profound things about who God is. And he's saying, compared to God, I am more stupid than any man. And I am like a beast. But in verse four, he, he says this, who has ascended to the heavens and descended? So he's speaking about God himself, obviously. God uh, sometimes coming down at the Tower of Babel and God interacting with human beings. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? God who has wrapped the waters in his garments, which is a poetic way to talk about the giver of rain, God, who has established all the ends of the earth, God. What is his name? Well, Yahweh, because he identifies him down in verse seven. And then he says, what is the name of his son? Kitada, surely you know. So I think it's very interesting. So all the, the, the answer to all the questions before that is, well, God, of course, what is his name? Well, Yahweh. What is the name of his son? Uh, and then he says, surely you know. So even then, even then, e- even in uh, Augur's day, which is uh, post-Solomon, uh, they knew something about uh, the triune God. Take note also of Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. We won't, we won't look at that. All right, uh, the Trinity in the New Testament. Okay, so uh, I'm running out of time in a, in a real hurry here. Um, but uh, let's see here. Uh, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And, and there are texts before this that speak of the Trinity. And this is really interesting. I, I love this. Luke 1, verses 26 through 35. And, and we read this every Christmas time. And it's always oh, so heartwarming. And, oh, and, you, know, we, you know, we feel these sentimental feelings about, the, about the, the virgin giving birth. And, oh, visited by the angel. And yet what we don't realize is that that passage where the angel Gabriel comes to speak to her is profoundly Trinitarian. For instance. And, and, and listen for the persons of the Trinity and listen for what they do. You ready? 
Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of uh, salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and his name shall be, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said, "Uh, that's crazy town. How can that even happen since I am a virgin? Well, let me tell you, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the son of God. Did you hear him? All three, there they are. Right, so the father sent Gabriel, who was with Mary. The, the father would send the son to be born. God the, uh, then we see God the son, the incarnate one, the son of the most high, the great king of David. And then there's the spirit who would empower and produce a miraculous pregnancy in the womb of Mary. Incredible, incredible stuff. John, the Gospel of John is replete with Trinitarian references. It's almost too much. It's almost too much. There's so much in every single chapter of these, these interwoven uh, threads of, 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 of God's Trinitarian nature. Uh, let me do one in Acts. So I just blew by the Gospels. Give you one. Sorry. Uh, the bo- uh, book of Acts. Listen to this. Acts 1, 6 through 8. It's Trinitarian. So when they, that is the disciples, had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you were restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Did you hear the Trinity? We've got Lord speaking They're speaking to Christ. And then it says the Father has fixed the plan by his own authority. And then they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them to fulfill the Great Commission. Pretty profound stuff. Now the Pauline Apostles, or the uh, Pauline Epistles. Uh, Book of Romans, lots of text. I'll give you one, his introduction. Listen for the Trinity. Romans 1, verses 1 through 4. Again, all I want to do is just give you exposure, begin to have you have ears that, that, that are keen and, and perceptive in hearing the Trinity. Paul's introduction, a Trinitarian introduction. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Did you hear the Trinity? We've got God the Son, who the descendant of David the Messiah who was raised from the dead. We've got God the Father, the source of the gospel, the Father of the Son, and we've got God the Spirit, the one who empowered the very resurrection of Christ. Check out later, Romans 15.30. Paul ends, uh, 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 almost ends his, bookends his letter with with, uh, a uh, Trinitarian nature of God. 
Listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6. We're talking about spiritual gifts in the church. He says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Do you see? The Trinity is profoundly integrated in the life of the local church. Really interesting stuff. God the Spirit parcels out and distributes whatever spiritual gifts you have as He pleases. God the Son provides the opportunities and the impetus and the example to serve. God the Father provides the effectual power that empowers us to serve always and only for His glory. It's profound. And then Paul ends 2 Corinthians this way. I'll do one more. Just to, I'm sure this is ad nauseum. I'm sure you, you get this. I'll do a couple more. Uh, the, uh, he ends 2 Corinthians this way. The grace of the Lord, Christ, Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. You could just take that text on your own and meditate on that for your morning devotion time and you could think about what does this say about the Father? What does this say about the Son? What does this say about the Spirit? What do I see here? Well, there's the grace of the Lord Jesus. There's the love of the Father and there's the fellowship of the Spirit. Interesting. And then you have texts like Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, which in the Greek text is all one sentence. I like Paul. I really like him a lot. He's got a lot to say. Appreciate that. Uh, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, it's the entire plan of salvation, and it has a Trinitarian framework. Verses 3 through 6 is the Father. 7 through 8 is the Son and the Father. And 13 and 14 is the Spirit. It's, it's profoundly Trinitarian. Listen to Titus 3, 3 through 6. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another, listen for the Trinity, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So we have God uh, the, the kindness of God and his love of mankind appearing. We have the Holy Spirit who regenerates us and we have uh, Christ through whom the Spirit comes. And verse 7 goes on to say that he justifies us by his grace. Lots and lots of texts. Unbelievable. Okay, one more. You got me. You convinced me. Twist my arm. All right. First uh, Peter 1, 1 and 2. It, Peter's introduction. Peter. Listen for the Trinity. An apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. The Trinity in his introduction. It opens with the Trinity. See, this is not like a 700-level class. Like, well, you don't really talk about the Trinity until you're like, you've really been around a long time and you've read a bunch of books. No, you, this, this, is, this is... So when I was in, in junior college, uh, Math 101 was the, only, was the first class in math that you got credit for. And then there were these other like, classes for like, people who were dumber than a box of rocks, and you had to take those classes to even get... And you didn't get credit for them, and you had to take those classes to get into 101 to get credit... 
This, so there was Math 90, 91, 92, and 99. Uh, this is really going longer than it should. <laughs> so uh, um, I had to take Math 90, 91, 92, and 99 to even get into 101. That's how dumb I was. My point is very simply this. The Trinity is Math 90 and 91 and 92 and 99, and you don't even get credit for it. It's, it, it should be really basic to who we are. Now, it goes deep. The, the rabbit hole goes pretty deep without question, but this should be basic for us in, in terms that we just have the Trinity on our lips. So I'm skipping lots of really great gold, and, and I apologize for that. Um, so let's, let's do this. I, I've, I've got 22 applications, um, but it might be more profitable to um, maybe hear from you guys if you guys have questions. So how, how about that? Why don't, why don't you guys ask me some questions, and if we've got time, I'll, I'll give some, some implications. Yeah, Larry. Yeah. Are there any other instances in the Bible where all three uh, forms of the, of the Trinity are manifested at the same time? Yeah, all three persons are, are manifested at the same time. Um, let me think here. Let me think. Well, I mean, yes, in the sense, I mean, if you're looking for something like that. Um, I mean, they were manifested to people. People heard this. Yeah, yeah, right, right. I mean, yeah. Uh, not in the same way like that, so, so public and, and obvious and, and undeniable like that, but, but in function, yes, because there are places like, and this isn't really what you're going for, but, um, you know, uh, Paul makes clear in Romans 8 that the resurrection of Christ involved all three persons, you know. So that was a Trinitarian moment, even though on the surface it may not have looked like it. Uh, the death of Christ was actually a Trinitarian moment. You can see aspects of, of the Trinity when you, when you look around involved in all of that. Um, I'd have to, that's a good question. I'd, I'd have to think about that. I, but, uh, so I don't think so, but maybe. That's a great answer, isn't it? That would be one thing to point to if someone denies the Trinity. You're right. But now, now, to be clear, they are many times in the Gospels, they are all spoken about in the same text. So, so there are those, and there's lots and lots and lots and lots of those. That's a good question. I have to think about that. Yeah, good, good call. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, go for it. So in First Colossians, or Colossians, chapter one, first yeah. chapter, um, talks about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. Yeah, yeah. The firstborn over all creation, for by Him all things were created, that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. And it goes on and so forth. And so, like tonight we read Genesis one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Mm-hmm. And it talked about the Spirit of God. Um, so when we read Genesis 1, do we think when it says, in the beginning, God, do we think of that as the Trinitarian mm. aspect of God? And then when we come here, this made me think, like, wow, Jesus Christ was the creative force or the creative person mm-hmm. in the Godhead. Mm-hmm. That's how I read this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, but maybe he wasn't he was he was in the tri- he's part of the trinity yeah so yeah therefore he is given credit here as being the credit force but in genesis one it's the trinitarian who's just part of it yeah that's that's so a good no, that's a good question. So let's see if I if I uh, I'll restate what I think your question is and tell me if I got it right. Is it appropriate 
to look at Genesis 1 and say, well, that's the Trinity, because we know that, because in Colossians 1 it says that Christ is the creator, and so therefore this is Christ here. And, and so, you know, so what we see in the text, that, that's a Trinitarian text. Would that be kind of a way to, to ask it? And the answer is, um, yeah, well... I think what you have to say is this, that that text by itself, like we have to be very careful to... Colossians or Genesis? Genesis, yeah. Uh, so we have to be very careful to make sure that when we take a text like Genesis, we don't um, import th- uh, revelation that came after and, and kind of... And this isn't, this isn't what you were saying you would do. You're, you're just asking what's a legitimate way to understand it. But what we have to make sure we don't do is sort of take past... Uh, um, uh, following revelation and kind of cram it back in um, and say, well, that's, that's Christ here. When it says in the beginning, God, that's actually Christ. We know that because Colossians 1 says that. Well, that's not actually what the text says. It's, it's, it's just saying that the God who is created all things. Now, what we should do is after we take this, so my point is we take the text on its own terms and we let it say what it says and we don't import any uh, uh, into its meaning, any later revelation into it. Now, what we can and should do is, okay, that's what Genesis 1 means on its own, by itself, when we start thinking through implications. Okay, now, step two of my study of the Bible. Um, what does the rest of the Bible say about creation? Well, it says this and this and this, and then eventually you would come to, and the Bible also tells me that Christ is the creator also. So even though Genesis 1 isn't teaching that at all, that there are, you know, that, that God the Son is involved there, it's not saying that. We can and should say by way of sort of application or, or biblical theology eventually go, well, we do know from the book of Colossians, even though Genesis doesn't say that, we do know that Christ is there. We come to find out later that he also is the creator, co-creator with the Father. So I don't know if that kind of helps. I, 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 you know, that, that's, a, that's a good question. But let the text stand on its own. And then by way of biblical theology, you could say, okay, what does the rest of the Bible teach about creation? And eventually you would come to Colossians 1 and say, well, we know that Christ is the co-creator. Um, so he was involved in the initial creation we see in Genesis 1. So yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Yeah. Would another thing to add in to be that all, that all the Trinity all have roles within things like creation. So they all could be called creator or they all had a role within creation or within mm-hmm. salvation. So similar to salvation that they had just different roles probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you totally. Yeah, yeah, you should say that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's really good. Um, good. What else, what else you got? Again, we covered literally like 25% of what I had here. So I hope I gave you enough material for questions. Any other questions? Oh, yeah. Could you steel man a, anti, a contemporary anti-Trinitarian position for us as far as like, um, presumably within the Christian circle or, or, or academia or something like that, as far as what would be the anti-Trinitarian thing that you might hear? Hmm. Uh, position. You're giving us this kind of ammunition to refute that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's really good. That's a that's a great question. I have to think about that. I've got a whole section here on the Trinity and the cults, Trinity and the evangelization of the cults, to be more specific. Um, and the only thing I could think of, there's probably more, James. Um, that's a great that's a great question. Um, I, I you know other than and again you said within evangelicalism, so people. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so I would say that there's probably more than this, but I would say the closest that I can think of off the top of my head to what you're talking about would be what is taught in some more of the more extreme Pentecostal. Again, it, I'm not saying that anyone who's Pentecostal is not Trinitarian. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying there, are, there is a fringe movement of the, of the Pentecostal church that has non-Trinitarian leanings. That's, that's where they're at. Um, oh, also, there's another. Uh, um, there are several strands of the, oh, shucks, what is that called? The uh, Hebrew Roots Movement. Have you, have you ever heard of the Hebrew Roots Movement? So it's basically like, it's a bunch of like Gentiles, a bunch of non-Jews who think Judaism is really cool and it's more authentic to use Hebrew words. And, and so they call themselves Messianic Jews. So, so there are strands of Messianic Judaism that ironically deny the Trinity. So just because someone says, well, I'm a Messianic Jew. Oh, awesome. You're, you're a Jew? Most likely they're not. Um, but sometimes they are. And, oh, you're a Jewish person. You believe in Yeshua? You believe in Christ? Yes, I believe in Yeshua. And then, and then some of those in that camp, when you dig, they're anti-Trinitarian. So they're, they're, it's a little odd. You don't run into a lot of them. But it's cultish, you know. So, so I would say extreme kind of fringes of Pentecostalism and the Hebrew roots movement or, or um, Messianic Judaism. Yeah, that's a good question. T.D. Jakes, yeah, so he would be kind of on that fringe of, you know, kind of the, the oneness Pentecostal. Again, he's really squishy because he, he's, he's made a living off of being nonspecific about what the Bible says. And, and so if you tried to pin him down, he would use language. You'd be like, I, I guess that works. I, I don't know why. He's just, he's just really fuzzy. Um, but, and, uh, because he came under a lot of heat in the last five or six years for his teaching on the, on the Trinity. So he kind of doctored it up a little bit, tried to say it, make it sound more orthodox, but there are stuff, older stuff where it's like, it's just straight modalism, straight modalism. And, you know, he can fandangle his words any way he wants, but I don't think he's changed his position. So, so he'd be sort of in that fringe, fringe movement. Um, what else you got? This is, this is really fun. Uh, Rich, go ahead. How do we see the Trinity in heaven? Like when we look at eternity yeah. in heaven to come? It's a great, great question. Yeah, what, what's interesting is that when you look at Revelation 21 and 22, the, the Spirit's role is notably absent um, in terms of when it's describing the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, Christ is there, the Father is there, and... Um, and, and they're explicit, and, and there's no temple because they're there. You don't need a temple because they're there. And, and, and there's, there's nothing said about the Spirit's work and role. Now, I think, I think he's there, but again, that just plays into what we see throughout all the Bible is, is that the, Spirit's, uh, has taken, the Spirit has taken a willing backstage role in the plan of salvation. So whatever his role is, even in the new heavens and the new earth, um, you know, it, it, it may not be front and center. You know, so my guess is, and this is just a hunch, I, you should never say things like this. Well, I don't have any text to support this, but here it goes. Um, you know, that, that probably, uh, I suspect anyway, that his role will still be a role of empowering us, even then. And perhaps, I, I can't find a text that says that, but I have no reason to deny that we will even be indwelt by him, uh, even in eternity future. So, because I, it seems like that's, because there's no text that says, well, when you're glorified, then you don't, then the spirit leaves. Like, it's not there. So that's probably the case. Yeah, great. Great question. Uh, oh yeah, you had one. Oh, I was 
Hey, pretty lady. Hey, all right. Okay. <laughs> hey, do you want to go on a date afterwards? <laughs> all right. Uh, will you marry me? Do all cults deny the Trinity? Yes. Yes. Categorically. Um, in fact, in fact, uh, this will be for next time or some other time. Oh, yeah. The question is, do all cults deny the Trinity? Yes, they do. Um, in fact, I would say every cult that exists in the world have the same four things in common that they deny. Here they are. So, so, you, so you don't have to know everything about Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Islam. These are the same four things that every cult and false religion in the world denies. One, they all deny that God is a trinity. And if they affirm the trinity, there's still something wacky about it. They might say the word trinity, but like, like the uh, Mormons, they, they're not believing in the trinity. So uh, every cult, false religion goes astray in the trinity. They deny the trinity. Number two, they deny the deity of Christ. Number three, they deny the penal substitutionary death of Jesus Christ as the only way to obtain salvation. And number four, they deny salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. So all cults in the world, false and false religions, deny those four major things, which those are the four things we're going to take a bullet for, right? Just period. Oh, and the sufficiency of scripture alone as the source of truth and nothing else outside of the pages of scripture. So those five things. So yeah, they all do go astray on the Trinity. Um, okay, well, I, I feel that I cheated you. I had these 22 implications that I was uh, so pleased with. Um, but uh, let me do this. This will be kind of weird, but I think we should totally do it. Um, let's, let's sing the doxology to close. Can we do that? Let, let's sing the Trinity as we go. I, I, hope I, can, I hope I can remember how it goes. And uh, I don't panic up here. And uh, I think I've got the words here, but that would just be a good way to, to, to close our time. I'm sure they'll come back to me. All right, are you ready? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And the Amen. Amen. All right, that's it. Thanks, guys. You guys are real troopers. Feel free to eat what's left out there. It's good to have you. Thanks for coming. We'll see you in a month when we do this.